The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Listening to Privacy Piracy, 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is KUCI. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, CNN, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about Mari's work, visit www.identitytheft.org. And to learn more about this radio show and this station and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. Who's your guest tonight? We have a very, very timely topic tonight and a fantastic lawyer who actually was recognized as California's super lawyer in 2005. 2006, 2007, and 2008. I am so thrilled to be able to bring to you Therese Stewart, who happens to be a terrific attorney up in San Francisco. She is the chief deputy city attorney up there in San Francisco, and she's been that attorney since 2002, and she oversees the city and county civil litigation And she represents San Francisco and its officials in key cases, and one of the biggest cases has become a a real issue and and a hot issue that actually is going to be affected by Proposition 8 or maybe not be affected. But it's a very important issue, and we're going to talk to her about this. Let me tell you a little bit about her, and we have a lot more about her on our website, because she has an incredible background. Terry Stewart and the city attorney team have defended the mayor also when his decision to issue marriage licenses to thousands of same-sex couples was challenged in 2004. The California Supreme Court ruled that the mayor and other city officials lack the power to refuse to enforce the limitation of marriage to opposite-sex couples based on their belief that such a limitation to just opposite-sex couples violated the Constitution. So that's a huge issue that has come about in the marriage cases, and she was fantastic in her argument before the California Supreme Court. To learn more about the San Francisco City Attorney's Office, you can go to sfgov.org. In 1999, she served as the first openly gay president of the Bar Association of San Francisco. In that capacity, she co-founded the Bay Area San Francisco School to College Program, which provides mentoring and guidance to inner-city high school students to help them prepare for, select, and apply to college. She serves on numerous task forces with the Judicial Council. She has done a tremendous amount of work for the American Bar Association. She She's just done so much, and she is really incredible. So I just I want to, before further ado, I want to have so many questions that I want to ask her. Thank you so much, Terry, for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. I, I feel a little like that inflated me, but that's all right. I'll do my best oh. to live up to it. Oh, my goodness. I, I didn't even get there. I mean, that, I could go on and on, but you are terrific. Let's talk about the issue at hand. Therese, as Chief Deputy City Attorney in San Francisco, You wrote the brief and argued for the city as the petitioner in the California Supreme case in the case of the city and county of San Francisco versus the state of California in those marriage cases. So for our listeners who don't know about the inception of this case and all about it, why don't you tell a brief history of what went on and that has led us up to this point. Sure. Um, you, You touched on it in your introduction. That it started with, it actually, let me go back a tiny bit to 2003. Two decisions were made by different courts. One was by the U.S. Supreme Court, which finally held after many years of a different decision that it wasn't 
acceptable under our federal constitution to make it a crime for gay people to have sexual relationships. That was a case called Lawrence versus Texas. And then not too long after that, the Massachusetts Supreme Court held in a groundbreaking decision that its state constitution was violated by the limitation on marriage to opposite-sex couples. So in the wake of those two 2003 decisions, in the beginning of 2004, our mayor uh, heard the president give his State of the Union address and talk about uh, a constitutional amendment to try to prevent same-sex couples from marrying. And he started to think about it and decided that he believed our own state constitution um, was violated or, or didn't permit um, our state law that limited uh, marriage to opposite-sex couples. So as your introduction mentioned, the first case involved uh, a suit against the city and the mayor in particular for deciding to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples based on his constitutional views. Now, the court held that he didn't have the power to make that decision, that it, it was a decision for the courts. And so as soon as the court made clear it was not going to weigh in in that case on the constitutional issue of whether our Constitution allows um, same-sex couples to be excluded from marriage, we filed a lawsuit in the trial court that over the space of four years worked its way up to the California Supreme Court challenging the marriage law. Let me see if I have some of this background correct. In March of 2004, City Attorney Herrera filed a constitutional challenge to the discriminatory provisions of the California Family Code that excludes lesbian and gay couples from the institution of marriage. This was the first time in American history that a government entity had litigated on the side of marriage equality. And then, the city's case was later coordinated with subsequent challenges by couples from San Francisco in the Bay Area and greater Los Angeles. And then, on March 14, 2005, San Francisco Superior Court Judge Richard A. Kramer found for the city and other plaintiffs concluding that sections of state law that exclude gay and lesbian couples from marriage are unconstitutional under the California Constitution. And he added that the idea that marriage like rights without marriage is adequate smacks of a concept long rejected by the courts which is separate but equal. And then it went up on appeal to the California Court of Appeal. September 20, 2005, the State Attorney General and other appellants filed their opening briefs with the California Court of Appeal in defense of the marriage exclusion. On October 5, 2006, a two-to-one majority opinion by Justices McGinnis and Perrault upheld the constitutionality of marriage laws, and they argued that everyone has a fundamental right to marriage, but because of how this institution has been defined, this means only that everyone has a fundamental right to enter a public union with an opposite-sex partner. Justice Klein's powerfully worded dissent faulted his colleagues' reasoning, arguing that the inescapable effect of the analysis by the majority is to diminish the humanity of lesbians and gay men whose rights are defeated. Then, as we know, it went up to the California Supreme Court. Chief Justice George and three other justices of the California Supreme Court reversed the holding of the California Appellate Court and found that the statutes imposing differential treatment on the basis of sexual orientation should be viewed as constitutionally suspect under the California Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. They came to this conclusion based on several factors, of which I'm going to read right from the opinion. First, the exclusion of same-sex couples from designation of marriage clearly is not necessary in order to afford full protection to all of the rights and benefits that currently are enjoyed by married opposite-sex couples. Permitting same-sex couples access to the designation of marriage will not deprive opposite-sex couples 
of any rights and will not alter the legal framework of the institution of marriage. Because same-sex couples who choose to marry will be subject to the same obligations and duties that currently are imposed on married opposite-sex couples. Second, retaining the traditional definition of marriage and affording same-sex couples only a separate and differently named family relationship will, as a realistic matter, impose appreciable harm on same-sex couples and their children because denying such couples access to the familiar and highly favored designation of marriage is likely to cast doubt on whether the official family relationship of same-sex couples enjoys dignity equal to that of opposite-sex couples. Third, because of the widespread disparagement that gay individuals historically have faced, it is all the more probable that excluding same-sex couples from the the legal institution of marriage is likely to be viewed as reflecting an official view that their committed relationships are of lesser stature than the comparable relationships of opposite-sex couples. Finally, retaining the designation of marriage exclusively for opposite-sex couples and providing only a separate and distinct designation for same-sex couples may well have the effect of perpetuating a more general premise now emphatically rejected by this state that gay individuals and same-sex couples are in some respects second-class citizens who may, under the law, be treated differently from and less favorably than heterosexual individuals or opposite-sex couples. Under these circumstances, we cannot find that the retention of the traditional definition of marriage constitutes a compelling state interest. Accordingly, we conclude that to the extent the current California statutory provisions limit marriage to opposite-sex couples, these statutes are unconstitutional. Terry, the Chief Justice and the other three justices of this California Supreme Court took note of the wide disparagement that gay individuals historically have faced. I know in your brief you spoke at great length about those historical discrimination and the horrors that people went through as gay individuals and unfortunately continue to experience that kind of discrimination. Could you share a little bit about that, what you put in your brief? I think it's very helpful for those listening. Sure. Um, you know, we didn't even get to go as back as far as we would have liked to in the briefs. Um, the, the history of hatred towards lesbians and gay men goes way back. It, it wasn't in every culture. In fact, it wasn't prevalent in, in Asia and Africa. But in Western culture, it arose somewhere around, you know, the 6th century B.C., and um, it was rooted in religious beliefs um, that often, uh, you know, also were the roots of other kinds of hatreds. And it, it led to extraordinary kind of acts of torture, castration, burning at the stake, um, all this kind of thing for anybody found to engage in homosexual acts. Um, in the Middle Ages, just, you know, I, I have to fast forward or it will take forever, but <laughs> right. people blamed homosexuals along with Jews and prostitutes for the plague and burned them alive. Uh, in the Inquisition, there was torture, continued torture of, of gay people, and in later periods, um, witch hunts were carried out to find uh, gay people in various countries who were drowned or strangled or burned alive. Now, not surprisingly, um, th- this fairly... Um, dominant view in, in, in many Western countries was exported elsewhere, including to uh, North America. So when our country was being colonized, um, it was still, uh, it was the law in many colonies to punish by death uh, any kind of sexual relations between uh, people of the same sex, usually by hanging. Um, and there, the persecution continued for a very long time. Slowly, I think, the, the punishment changed from death to long periods of imprisonment. But um, the, the harassment was kind of pervasive across culture. And, and people were, uh, if, if they were found to have uh, same-sex both attraction or, or, or to actually engage in same-sex relationships, um, they, they could be institutionalized in mental hospitals, um, castrated, uh, subject to shock therapy, lobotomy, 
um, the medical establishment without any kind of evidence to base it on early on labeled homosexuals as perverts and deviants and um, there were witch hunts for gay men and lesbians in the uh, in the military, in universities, um, during World War II, there was a, a military-wide witch hunt. Um, and also, not long after that, uh, President Eisenhower um, issued an executive order calling for the ouster of every gay man or lesbian from any job in federal government, mm. leading to firing of thousands of lesbians and gay men. Um, there, there were witch hunts both by military and civilian police um, against, you know, directed against um, not only gay men and lesbians themselves, but restaurants or bars that served them, right. and people's liquor licenses would be taken away um, just for serving people who were gay. Um, there was extensive censorship of any kind of um, male uh, media um, uh, publications that even referred to homosexuality, and anyone who is an adult today will, you know, think back and realize it wasn't really until a few years ago when Ellen came out in her sitcom that that uh, gay people began to appear in any appreciable uh, way on television because, you know, again, the, the major media were afraid that their FCC licenses would be revoked and, and even Hollywood, was, you know, was cowed into not portraying gay people or talking about issues having to do with being gay. Um, and I just want to fast forward a little more because it, it's easy to think that that's ancient history or, or history, and it, it's not just history. The, the laws that discriminate against gays are still on the books in the federal government in particular, very pervasive. The don't ask, don't tell policy, it's still perfectly legal um, to, for employers to fire people under federal law and under most states or many states' laws. Um, harassment and, and hate violence are perpetrated regularly on gay people. You can think of cases we know about, Matthew Shepard, Gwen Araujo, Brandon Tina, um, but there are many more that you don't hear about. And one of the things that just jumped uh, to my attention again yesterday, I was reading um, our, we call them the advance sheets, which have recent decisions, and there was a case out of a, a high school in San Diego, uh, Poway High School, where two, uh, actually three Students there were just repeatedly harassed. They were threatened. One of them was beat up. One was, um, they, two of them were, you know, pushed against lockers, threatened with death. One got death threats in his car. His car was vandalized. They were, they were the subject of the most awful, you know, you, you faggot and, and worse things I can't say on the radio. Right. Um, and were, were eventually left the school. They, they complained and the principal did nothing no investigation, made no effort to stop it. Some of the conduct um, occurred in front of teachers. Rocks were thrown at the kids. Food was thrown at the kids. It just So that stuff still goes on today. It's not ancient history. And, right. um, so that's the backdrop um, and, and, and really just a slice of it that we uh, operate in. Right. And that discrimination really fosters a lot of the fears of what's going on as well. So tell us, you know, I think it's pretty interesting to compare how the marriage cases that that just were resolved in the Supreme Court are very similar to the prohibition of the interracial marriages that were also reformed in the courts. Why don't you, I know you talked about that in, in the cases. Why don't you share that? Because I don't think people realize people can get married now of mixed races, but it wasn't that case in the 50s, right? Late yeah, 40s? That's right. And the, the, um, the issue in the interracial marriage cases, which date back um, to the middle of the last century and probably some of the early ones even, even before, um, was whether laws that had been on the books since colonial times that prohibited uh, African-American people and in many states, um, Asian people from marrying white people, um, the, whether that violated the Constitution, that prohibition. And much like um, in, in our cases, those laws were of ancient pedigree. They'd, they, they'd been around since before our country was founded. Um, and they had been challenged um, a number of times that, uh, at the time our California Supreme Court first considered the issue in 1948 in a case called Perez versus Sharp. And at that time, in the 16 prior cases that had uh, considered the issue, everyone had held the law was constitutional and rejected the challenge. 
But um, and, and at that time, it's also the case that, that that the popularity of those laws was very, very high. There was something like 90% of the population um, or more that still favored uh, a ban on interracial marriage in 1948. And it was also the case that other forms of discrimination against um, uh, racial minorities was quite legal, particularly segregation. Um, this was before the time of Brown versus Board. And another similarity was that the people who defended the laws against interracial marriage, much like our opponents in defending the laws against marriage by same-sex couples, um, often premised their arguments on, on religious uh, grounds and religious beliefs. Um, the, the one argument that you see in one of the, uh, the case out of Virginia on this issue said, you know, that one of the major majority opinion actually said, you know, if God had intended the races to mix, he wouldn't have put them on separate continents. Okay. <laughs> um, so therefore, you know, it, it made sense to keep us separate and not allow intermarriage. Um, so, so you know, it, it, today we look back and we think, you know, how could how could that have been illegal? Number one, and how could anyone um, believe those things? But um, but there, it's it's very similar in a lot of ways to some of the um, beliefs today. But the difference is that today is like for, for gay people is like 1948 for for. Uh, racial minorities, um, in the sense of uh, the, the 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 beliefs still being rooted in religion that somehow gay people are inferior. So the the California Supreme Court in the Perez case, you know, going against a, a quite a heavy tide of precedent and a lot of tradition, um, held that the Constitution um, prohibited uh, denying marriage to interracial couples. Um, and, and it held that um, when it comes to marriage, people are not interchangeable and that a, a key part of the right to marry that's protected by the Constitution is the right to marry the person you choose, not the right to marry who the government chooses for you. Right, right. Let's talk, because you, you brought up some of the issues of what's going on now, and we have an election coming up very soon with Proposition 8. Many people have an emotional reaction to this case, and we I think a lot of it is in the fears and the discrimination that's gone on for a long time, as you brought up. So that seems to have been what prompted Prop 8 on the ballot. Why don't you explain what Proposition 8 is so that people know before they vote, kind of being able to look at it, what does it really say, and let's talk about, um, you know, a little bit about its ramifications right now. Well, the proposition is designed to right the discrimination that the Supreme Court held uh, exists in the in the marriage exclusion into our California Constitution by prohibiting marriage of same-sex couples right in our state constitution um, and um, the, the ramifications are are difficult to know but I think they are far-reaching because when you say that uh, gay people can be treated differently as a matter of constitutional law in one context um, it provides a justification for discriminating against them and treating them differently in other contexts. Now, the driving force behind Proposition 8, if you watch what's going on in the campaign, is really the Mormon church, which has poured millions and millions of dollars of its own and its members' funds into the Yes on 8 campaign. Um, if it were not for that uh, uh, intervention, if you will, by that church, um, th there probably would be not even a close battle on this issue. Um, the Mormon ha church has a website that basically says that being in a homosexual relationship is ab an abominable sin, that being homosexual is akin to being a thief or an alcoholic, and that giving rights to gay and lesbian couples, even through domestic partnerships or civil unions, is against Mormon beliefs, and that Gay people shouldn't be allowed to have children or adopt children. It's against their beliefs and the Mormon church beliefs. And that if gay people are allowed to marry, it will degrade the institution of marriage because gay relationships are so abominable in the eyes of God. So that's the Mormon church's belief system. And what's going on here is that the church hierarchy, and I don't want to say they're the only ones involved, but I'm saying they're the dominant force here. They don't make any bones about their desire to impose their belief system on all Californians through using their money and their volunteer uh, member activities to have their beliefs enacted into our state constitution. 
If someone is gay and they are a Mormon, are they thrown out of the Mormon church? If they, unless they are absolutely celibate and um, basically agree not to have a relationship with a person of the same sex, um, they, their, their membership is subject to question. Uh-huh. I, I think they have some sort of procedures for, you know, um, booting people out, if you will, and I can't say that I know how they work, but right. that, that is stated in the material on their website. Now, some of these uh, advertisements are saying that if Proposition 8 does not pass, that churches will lose their tax-exempt status if they refuse to perform marriages of same-sex couples. What do you think about that? That's absolutely false. Um, what I, I think, and it's and it's misled a lot of people. And one of the things that's so frustrating is that um, uh, people are are acting on that fear, and it and it just is is false. Um, the one reason it's very straightforward that I can tell you that it's not true is because the Supreme Court, in its decision in the marriage cases, specifically addressed that and said that the decision in this case will not require any church to marry a couple that uh, it religious beliefs um, uh, would would preclude it from marrying and that there will be no repercussions for a church making that decision or a religious organization. Um, but it, it, what people don't remember and don't realize is in, in our states all across the country, from the time that we were founded, we made marriage a civil institution. From a legal standpoint, um, what governs whether you're married for purposes of anything law-related, including uh, tax benefits and, and uh, whether you have custody of your children and how the divorce laws work, all of that is a legal matter, not a religious matter. Now, that doesn't mean that religions don't have their own views about marriage. They do, and they're allowed to, and they can marry who they want, and they don't have to marry anyone they don't want, and that's always been true because we've treated... Um, marriage as a civil law matter and you know the state determines who gets to marry for purposes of legal matters and then only for purposes of religious matters do religious organizations get involved but in that capacity they're free to marry who they want and not marry who they want many churches did not perform interracial marriages for many many years uh, after the case even by the US Supreme Court held that uh, that the, the, the government had to allow interracial couples to marry, and nobody's tax exemption was denied. So it, it's just a, um, it's a boogeyman, a bogeyman. Right. Um, it's not real. It's a it's a false. It's a red herring. And and the Supreme Court said as much in its decision. And so I think this is a scare tactic. And I think the folks who are are saying it in the ads, they know they know perfectly well. But I think a lot of pastors and Congregations, you know, they don't know that they don't they don't understand the distinction between civil marriage and religious marriage, and so they hear this and they get afraid. Right, and the fact that you have to get a marriage license at the courthouse or wherever it is that you're going to get it, it shows you that that is that's that's required by the government, and then you can have a marriage ceremony in your church, exactly. but it's entirely different. Exactly. Entirely different. Exactly. How about the fears that people talk about that they're, you know, I've seen them try to say this in just, in fact, today in a letter to the editor about how they're, they're worried that if proposition doesn't pass, that children will be taught about same-sex marriages in schools and that their kids are going to be talked into becoming gay when they're not gay. What do you think about that? Again, I think it's another bogeyman and a scare tactic. Um, you know, what we learn in political campaigns is that when you don't have good reasons, you make up scary lies, and, and that's what that is about. I mean, schools don't teach children about marriage, by and large. I mean, the, the closest you're going to come, especially in, in the lower grades, is, you know, maybe they'll read a story about a marriage, but it, it is not the school's job to teach children about marriage, So, uh, and, and it's and it even further not the school's job's um, to teach people about sexuality, and in fact, you know, the, the very minimum sort of... Um, uh, that gets taught about that at the high school level is is often um, very very circumscribed by you know parents not parents wanting to deal with those issues at home and so there's nothing in the 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 Supreme Court decision um, that suggests that schools have to teach anything about marriage to children um, any, any kind of marriage marriage between an opposite sex couple marriage of a same sex couple um, 
you know, will children learn that same-sex couples can marry? Well, um, presumably, you know, it's not going to be a secret, but it, it's not an issue that should be uh, the topic of, of school teaching because it's not part of the curriculum. Right. But if a child goes to school and he's got two mommies or he's got two daddies, then, you know, the teacher should be able to say that's legal. <laughs> their but parents that's are married. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. That's the extent of it. And, and by the way, that happens anyway. I mean, right. um, the, in, in, in uh, many families now, the, the, or many schools have families, all kinds of families, um, families with one parent, families with two parents, families with opposite-sex parents, same-sex parents, families with mixed race. I mean, all right. of those things are true. Right. And the fact that we've had the domestic partnership since, I think, 2005, right? Right. That the kids have been coming in and having two mommies and two daddies, and, and that's perfectly legal for them to adopt or whatever, or have a child within that relationship. Let's go back a little bit to the, the legal issues, because I think they're fascinating, and I think that'll help people to understand more when they're thinking about this vote coming up. So, um, here we had a very conservative chief justice of the California Supreme Court, right? And some people say he stuck, he stuck his neck out. Uh, some people say he was brave. Um, he, he wrote this opinion about whether it would be constitutionally permissible under the California Constitution to limit marriage only to opposite-sex couples, right? So let's talk really about what was the question that they were answering, which is not about whether he is a conservative or a liberal. It's more about whether he was following the law. Exactly. And, you know, the chief, and, and I have been a, a watcher of this court for a long time because many of our cases go before this court. And, uh, you know, I, I have observed the chief for, from a distance and, and the other justices, by the way. And he is, he is a Republican appointee, and, and all the justices except one are. But I don't think... Um, ideology um, influences his decision-making um, to any degree other than really at all. I mean, he strives more than anybody I know and, and as, as any justice or judge really should do to make decisions without regard to politics or ideology or personal beliefs or religious beliefs. Or, or what's popular or what's, what's, popular, yeah, what's, what's not tradition, popular. right. Um, right. He looks at, and here he looked at our state constitution, and he looked at the way those constitutional provisions had been interpreted in earlier cases. Um, and he and the majority of the court um, held that our uh, that three of our state constitutional guarantees were implicated here, and all three of them um, were inconsistent with denying marriage to same-sex couples. And those were guarantees of equality and liberty and privacy. So let's go through those things. And I think people need to know that the California Constitution, unlike the federal Constitution, actually guarantees a right to privacy, which is unique among many of the states. I don't remember. There's a handful that, that actually have that included in their constitution. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Well, our, we, we um, adopted that provision in 1977, I believe, and it was after the U.S. Supreme Court had recognized an implied right to privacy in the federal constitution and had interpreted that right to protect people's sort of intimate decisions about family and, and sexuality and um, raising children um, to, to be protected against government interference. And so one of the things that the, the voters did when they put the privacy clause in our state constitution was to say they were incorporating those federal cases and, and, and going beyond them and that it was about the right to protect our homes and our expressions and our um, our uh, you know, personal beliefs and, and things like that. And so after the, that provision was put in our Constitution, there developed sort of two concepts of privacy. One of them is the one that I think you've written a good deal about, which is called informational privacy, right. which is sort of the right to keep certain things, you know, from being viewed by other people, like your medical records or your personnel records or financial uh, records. Financial records, exactly. Right. Um, but the other strain of privacy is what's called autonomy privacy. And what that means is the thing I was referring to earlier in those U.S. Supreme Court cases. And that's the right to make important decisions about 
one's life and things that are really momentous and will have a big effect on one's life without the government interfering and making those decisions for you. So here, the, the right to marry, which had previously been, been uh, recognized as having been protected by the, the right of privacy, um, the, the, the question is, you know, should the government be able to tell you who you can marry and who you can't marry? Should it make that decision for you? Or does your right of autonomy, privacy, to make those personal decisions for yourself um, uh, prevent the government from, from getting in the way of that? And uh, the government occasionally does get in the way of it, and, and I think it would be upheld if it were challenged, like not letting children marry, you know, where there are really compelling reasons for it. But uh, absent some kind of compelling reason, the privacy clause uh, prevents the government from making those decisions for us. Right. So the, the court found that it is unconstitutional, right, to limit marriage only to opposite-sex couples, right? Correct. It violates their right to privacy, among other things. Right. Now, some people say, okay, look, this, the legislature in California has been very progressive. It's established the domestic partnership law. So same-sex couples enjoy nearly all the same benefits. You can, you know, you can get uh, spousal support. You can get child support. You, you know, you go through a dissolution of your domestic partnership. It's, it's just about the same. So why is it so necessary to have uh, established marriage? What's, what's the difference between a domestic partnership and a marriage? What, what, what's so important? Well, well, let me just start that by saying I would ask somebody who posed that question to me, you know, are you a parent? Do you, do you have children? Because when you think of your hopes and your dreams for your children, um, including about family, you know, do you dream about them entering into a domestic partnership? Um, of course you don't. You, you think about that which is traditional, about them marrying and settling down with someone who loves them and having children, perhaps, that will be your grandchildren. Um, one of the, the people we put a declaration in from uh, was a, a, a Chinese immigrant to this country who became a citizen who... who um, who talked about why it's necessary in these terms. She said, look, I have six children. I want all of my children to marry. Five of them are married, but my daughter Helen is a lesbian, and so she hasn't been allowed to marry. She's been with her partner for, I, I think it was 12 years at the time. Hmm. And I, I, I love her daughter, and I, I, I mean, I love her partner, and I think of her as a daughter, but I can't call her my daughter-in-law because it's not official. Um, I don't have a way of describing their relationship to my friends. My friends don't know what domestic partnership means. Um, everybody understands when you say your children are married that the they have somebody who loves them and that the person's family has become part of your family and the two families have joined together. And everybody knows what to call. You know what to call your, your child's partner when they're married. You call them your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law, and you, right. you talk to them about their family as your in-laws. So what she's really saying by that description of how she felt was that domestic partnership, it has no history. It has no traditions. It's, it's not well known. It's not well understood. And it's certainly not highly respected or honored by our culture. In fact, it was created just for lesbian and gay people because um, there was a fear about giving them the same stature, that they were so icky or unsavory that if we gave them the same stature, it might, you know, reflect badly on us. Well, that's, that's a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a discrimination, a bias, a prejudice. And so people understand that domestic partnership is less than. Um, we also had a 16-year-old boy whose moms um, are... Um, have been together since before, you know, for 20 years, who said, you know, when my, when my moms got married, it, it showed the world they were in it for real. And I always thought of them as equal, but other people didn't. And it matters to me that other, that, that society view my moms as equal. So I want to just also mention two cases that, that kind of demonstrate this in a different context. They're, they're both cases involving discrimination based on race and gender. Um, the, the one involved a law school, the University of Texas Law School, and it um, 
didn't want to let black people into its law school and thought they were too icky, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so it said, well, instead of letting them come to the University of Texas Law School, we'll create a separate law school for black people. And we'll put, you know, the same number of books and we'll, we'll even use the same faculty members to teach the law school. Um, but, but it'll be separate. Um, and then th there's another case, and I'm going to talk about the results in a minute. But the other case was a case about um, the Virginia Military Institute. And it only allowed men to attend its school. And women started wanting to uh, attend military schools. And it said no. And, and so um, when it was sued, it said, well, we'll create a separate school for women um, with a different name. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make it similar in its facilities. And um, give it, you know, comparably good faculty. Um, and, and the court in both of those cases, um, and they were many, many years apart, decades apart, but both times the court, the U.S. Supreme Court held, that's not good enough. And the tangible um, aspects of those schools were, if not the same, they were close to the same. But what the courts said in those cases is those schools had traditions. They had um, they were highly respected and honored. And um, when you came out with a degree from U University of Texas or VMI, um, it was it was highly regarded. And you couldn't relegate women or blacks to a different school and consider that to be equal when that school had no traditions and no history and was really created as sort of a second-class school just for them or, or created for them in a way that recognized that they were in some way second-class citizens. So that's that's the problem with having a different institution. It's 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 labeling a group as separate, and and so then you have to say, well, why? And um, here, when you have a history of discrimination against people, you know why. Right. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it's kind of separate but equal. It just brought me back to when I was a kid, and we used to go to Florida, and they used to have the bathrooms for the blacks and the bathrooms for the whites. I mean, clearly, it's discrimination. Just, you know, when you think about that, even if they say it's equal, they're, they're just not equal. And the other thing that makes me think about the, the word marriage versus partnership. Partnership sounds like a business deal, doesn't it? It, it doesn't, does indeed. <laughs> it just doesn't have that, that love. I know Lloyd and I were together for a long time and, and got married after we knew each other, like, what, 12 years. And it was a difference when we got married. It was a different commitment that you joined in something that was legal and and it was a different kind of sanctity, so to speak, whether you do it in a church or not. Do you know what I mean? It just, I, I do. When you when you marry, it's like the whole community of your family and friends is a part of that compact. They're, they understand it, they, they believe in it, and they come together to say, we're going to try to keep these two people together. We're, we're committed to this. You're committing to each other in a way, and the recognition that you get from society and the support, both emotional and, um, and, and often economic, is, is a way of, of society committing to that relationship. And that just doesn't exist for domestic partnership or civil unions. Exactly. We're speaking with Terry Stewart, who has served as Chief Deputy City Attorney for the City of San Francisco since 2002. And she headed a team of deputy city attorneys and private firm law, uh, private law, uh, law firms representing the plaintiff city and the county of San Francisco in the marriage cases, which were litigated in the state trial and appellate courts. And she did a fabulous job presenting oral argument to the California Supreme Court on March 4, 2008, and the high court decision was issued on May 15, 2008, basically stating that it was unconstitutional to um, restrict marriage to persons of opposite sex. And if you want to see her arguing and her articulation, it was just amazing the way she talks to the Supreme Court justice and that you can go to the Supreme Court website. I don't know if you have that in front of you. I had it on my computer, Terry, but it is. It was really, you know, anybody can see her arguing, and it's just it's, um, amazing. www.courtinfo.ca.gov. Yep, you, you can be proud. You can be proud of yourself. That was great. Let's go back to your brief because I really enjoyed reading it. And, and, again, a lot of the people who are listening are business people. I don't know how many of them are going to be attorneys listening, but let's talk about that. You argued that strict scrutiny is the standard that should have been that should be applied to this case, and you argued that 
distinctions between same-sex and opposite-sex couples discriminates on the basis of gender, sexual orientation, and basically impinge on a fundamental right. Why don't you explain what you mean by strict scrutiny and, and how that really applies, because I thought that was really important. Um, it, it was a central part of the argument, um, although I also argued that it wasn't crucial to our argument. But the way the strict scrutiny kind of language refers to um, two types of cases, again, um, originating in the U.S. Supreme Court um, and then uh, to some degree followed and elaborated on by state Supreme Courts interpreting their own constitutions. And what um, the courts have said is that when um, there's been a history of discrimination against a group and when the characteristic for which the, the people are singled out and discriminated against doesn't really have any bearing on their ability to perform in society or function in society, um, before the government can adopt laws that uh, treat them differently from other people, um, it has to meet a very high, a strict level of judicial scrutiny, which means the court's going to look very carefully at that law and ask the government to justify that dis difference in treatment by a very compelling reason. Okay? So what, what, um, our Supreme Court had never addressed uh, or, or ruled one way or the other on was whether sexual orientation was one of those um, characteristics that um, should be the kind that subjects <coughs> government to a very high uh, compelling justification or strict scrutiny when it makes a distinction between people because they're gay or straight because of their sexual orientation. So we um, presented, and, and that's why our brief focused so heavily on that history of discrimination against gay men and lesbians, and um, also on the many other um, cases and statutes in, in, our, uh, in our statute books and uh, other evidence that shows that people who are gay and lesbian are just as capable of being good employees, of being good public citizens, serving on juries, being uh, judges. Um, they, they are just as capable of uh, entering into committed relationships with each other and of having long-standing, long-term relationships and of having and raising children together and adopting children. And, and so because of those two criteria that they, there's been this long history of prejudice against them and because there's nothing about being gay or lesbian that means you can't be a fully contributing member of society, that should require the government, if it's going to treat gay people differently from, from heterosexual people, to have a really strong and good, compelling reason why. And the court agreed with us on that. And um, I should mention that there's another context in which the courts have applied strict scrutiny besides um, situations where a class is singled out for different treatment. And that is where a very, very important right that's protected by some other some, some part of our Constitution is being denied or seriously uh, infringed on. Um, and so here we also argued that the, both the liberty clause of our state Constitution and the privacy clause protect the right to marry. And that actually was a pretty well-established uh, um, principle of law. And so for that reason uh, alone, it, it, the court had to apply a high level of, of scrutiny and, and require a compelling uh, uh, justification for upholding a, a difference in treatment. Right. And you, they had already applied um, strict scrutiny to discrimination on the basis of gender, correct? Correct. And so then you, you used that argument as well. We did. We, I have to say that that argument... Fell on deaf ears. The court did not agree with me on that argument. Oh. Um, they believed that even though the marriage law um, explicitly talks about a man and a woman, and that's a gender distinction, um, that because it doesn't treat uh, men as a class and women as a class differently, it, it doesn't um, implicate strict scrutiny. Um, so we had a little disagreement about that, but it, 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 in the end, because they decided in our favor on the other grounds, uh, we didn't care. <laughs> yes. I, I said I, I wasn't going to cry in my beer about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
And then, of course, that it impinged on a fundamental right to marry was was the clincher as well, right? Yes, very much so. Great. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the invasion of privacy in this case. Let's let's go a little bit further into that. Sure. Um, well, as I mentioned, the, the invasion of privacy here is really about the government um, getting involved and um, interfering, if you will, with a decision that um, is deeply important to an individual about um, something that impacts their lives in an important way. Um, let me give you a few other examples of where that right to privacy has been recognized to prevent the government from stepping in. One is in the area of uh, contraception, the use of contraception. The U.S. Supreme Court held that the right to privacy prevents the government from telling people who are married or unmarried that they can't use contraceptive devices. Um, another is with respect to reproductive freedom and the freedom to choose whether to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, that's an area in which the right to privacy applies, and the courts have held that it applies. Another area concerns decisions about raising one's children, um, decisions about whether to teach them a, a, a language other than English. The government can't uh, come in and say that, that can't be taught in the schools or that parents can't choose to, to teach their children a second language. Um, th there are um, m many of the privacy, uh, I, I would say probably most, um, of the privacy-related um, cases involve either um, the home and the family and rights about uh, people's um, Body. Families. Yeah, and their body. And, and, and their bodies. That's the secondary <laughs> and sexuality. Um, and so, um, you know, th those are kind of the arenas in which uh, it's come up in other arenas as, as well, but those are the ones where you see the most cases. So, so the idea is if, if, if I'm going to make a, a really momentous decision that, that might affect my life for years to come, uh, something that really matters, the government should really stay out of it. Right. Right. So how does the California Supreme Court's ruling in marriage cases really affect same-sex couples? How, how, is, how are they going to be affected legally? By the decision? Yes. Uh -huh. um, well, they, they now can come to the county clerk's office and, and get a marriage license and, and celebrate their relationships as a marriage and have that marriage recognized um, in uh, not only in California, but in other states and countries where it doesn't offend the public policy of that state or country, of which there are many. Um, and um, it are, are there very many in the United States? I mean, I know Massachusetts, right? You Massachusetts, can do Massachusetts, New York, um, I believe New Hampshire. Um, in other words, it's not only states that permit uh, gay couples to marry in those states, but states that have held... Uh, that, that, they that they don't have yeah. a, 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 what's called a mini-DOMA on their books. They don't have a law that specifically prohibits any kind of recognition of a marriage of a same-sex couple from another state. Right. Now, many states do have that kind of law. Connecticut, by the way, is another state where it would be recognized. Right. Um, so, um, and, and Canada, and Spain, and Israel, and, you know... A lot the, of the Scandinavian and countries, Netherlands, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. and the list goes on. And, and some South American countries. So, um, it, it's not a uh, uh, an insignificant right in that regard, but most of all, most importantly, what it means is that when when you go down uh, to the school to register your child, or you go to the hospital to check in with your uh, spouse, you know, it, you you get to check the box that says married, and people know what you're talking about. They know how to treat you. They they honor it. They respect it. They accept it. Now, a lot of the laws, I mean, a lot of the rights that were established with the domestic partnership law then are actually enhanced. Am I correct? Yes. So, for example, if, and I don't know how exactly how this is all going to come out, it's interesting, but if you were a domestic partner and then you get married, your community property would really arise from when you first had that domestic partnership, right? That's right. That's correct. The domestic partner, the rights and... and um uh, benefits that um, flowed from domestic partnership, which, by the way, 
don't extend to federal benefits because federal law explicitly discriminates under the Defense of Marriage Act. Right, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's just but say the state can, yeah. law rights and benefits and obligations, by the way. Right. Um, if if you um, um, acquired and took those on through a domestic partnership in this state, um, and you then married. Um, the the date for many of those rights to have come into play will date back to when you entered into the domestic partnership. So it, it really does enhance, and it's almost like you're it's a retroactive marriage, so to speak. In a sense, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, how does the decision affect the rights of heterosexuals? <laughs> well, tangibly, not at all. And, and, right. and intangibly, um, I would say not at all. I mean, some people, again... They they feel they have feelings about it. They're, they they may have religious beliefs like the Mormon Church or you know some other Christian churches um, or even you know non-Christian churches. But um, then there are many people from churches that are firmly in in favor and support uh, marriage for same-sex couples. So um, apart from sort of people's personal or, or, or religious or other belief systems, there, there's no impact whatsoever on, on heterosexual relationships or couples or the rights that flow from uh, a marriage for, uh, for a heterosexual couple. Right, right. And, and that's one of the things that I keep seeing in the, in the newspaper with these letters to the editor is like, well, it's going to impact my marriage. Well, I don't see how it would impact anything on my marriage if somebody else, I mean, it never bothers me if somebody else gets married or lives together or whatever. It doesn't affect my marriage whatsoever. Uh, you know, I agree. I mean, I think that, if anything, it should it should strengthen the institution. When people um, um, strive for something, when they seek it, when they recognize its value, um, it, it's, it carries over to, to, to society at large. And so the more people who are really making that commitment and willing to, um, you know, participate in, in this institution, the more vital the institution becomes. So I don't see how it, it affects in any negative way um, other than people who, who harbor, you know, real prejudice. And the prejudice may, may come from religion. It may come from other things. But it, it, it's, it is a prejudice. So tell me, what do you think is going to happen if the if Proposition Eight were to pass? Um, if Proposition Eight were to pass, um, the the law in California going forward would be that same-sex couples could not marry, um, and that marriages of same-sex couples from other places would not be recognized in California. Um, it would. Uh, it, it would not, um, on its face, obviously invalidate the domestic partner statute, although I will note that um, I fully expect the people who support this proposition to argue that it does. They argued that when Proposition 22 passed, and you can never be sure until the court has spoken uh, what the court will say about something like that. Um, it there's a question of whether it will have retroactive effect. Yeah, I was going to say, how about all the people who are running now to to get married and make sure that they have that right? It, they, you know, again, people have different views, but I think um, folks uh, will argue that it was designed to take rights away. It, it is designed to take rights away, but that it it was it, it has a retroactive effect and it will undo all those marriages that have happened. You know, which I'm hearing numbers like eleven thousand, twelve thousand. Uh, marriages that have happened thus far, um, possibly more by the time of the election. Um, so, um, you know, it, and it will, in a, in, a, in a deeper way, I think, um, sort of right into our Constitution that lesbians and gay men and, and their, their families are second class, that they're not full citizens, that, they, that it's acceptable to treat them differently, and that there's something wrong with them that justifies treating them differently. And that message that this initiative will carry will go back to all those places where discrimination still occurs in our society and all those people who act hateful or um, discomfort or whatever you want to call it and will will justify how they feel, validate it. Well, Terry, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for all of your wisdom and explaining to us about the Supreme Court decision about marriages. You've been listening to Terry Stewart, who is the Chief 
Deputy City Attorney for the City of San Francisco, and she has talked to us about gay marriage and also about Prop 8. So just think about this when you're preparing to vote that our California Constitution, the law of the land, guarantees the same freedoms and rights to everyone. No group should be singled out to be treated differently. And if you want to keep our California Constitution intact, please consider this very important issue. And voting no would keep the Constitution as it is, and voting yes would instill discrimination according to the California Supreme Court. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. Also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And thank you. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.